Hi everybody, I'm Robin Willis, and welcome to another edition of Expat Stories, where we present tales about living life in expatria, a place where home really is where the heart is. This episode's storyteller is Kip Baratov, and it was recorded on August 29th at the Atlantis Lounge in Portland, Oregon. I was leaving Matt with his ass hanging out of the bathroom, and it was a really uncomfortable experience for me, but perhaps not while you're thinking. So we had been in the cab on the way to the airport, and Matt had, Matt had thrown up on me, and we went back to the hotel where he continued to throw up for the next 36 hours because he had ate something he shouldn't have eaten. And I was going to do something that terrified me, which was I was going to go out into the vast continent of Africa by myself. And so this story is about um, me trying to uh, understand a continent that, does anybody know how big Africa is? (laughs) Do you know that it's big? It's 11 million point six square miles big, right? Like, uh, we're talking about India, Argentina, New Zealand, China, Europe, and the United States can all fit inside the continent of Africa, right? So when people say, have you been to Africa? It's, it's like, uh, maybe. And I worked all over the continent, except for North Africa. And, um, it's, it's big though, right? It's really big and it's daunting. And here was my buddy from grad school. God knows what was going on with his GI track, <laughs> leaving me alone to go out into this continent on day two. Day two, okay? Did I mention I'm white? <laughs> Did I mention that, that I'm, I'm straight? and I'm a male, and I grew up privileged in an affluent community outside of New York. These are all very relevant details to the sort of knot in my stomach, okay? It was really important. It was a milestone moment in my life. So I, um, I board the plane, because I'm leaving across. So I'm in Ghana, I'm in the country of Ghana. Ghana's on the Gold Coast in West Africa. And I board the plane to go from Accra, which is the capital city of Ghana, It's about a million people in the city of Accra. And Accra is like, you think New York is fast-paced? Accra makes New York look like a narcoleptic, okay? (laughs) New York is very structured chaos. I grew up there, right? There's, you know, millions of people that move through the tunnels of the subways on the sidewalks, right? But the space organizes their movement. In, In Ghana, in most of Africa, actually, but in Accra, the capital city of Ghana, there isn't that kind of physical infrastructure to organize people, so they're just all over the place, right? There's a million people in a much larger land mass, but they're just like everywhere. There isn't the concept of sidewalks or crosswalks or slightly things to organize our movement. Anyway, so I'm on the way to the, the plane, I digress, and I get on the plane, and I'm feeling relaxed because it's a six-seater plane, and <laughs> there's a bunch of white people on it, so I was really relieved. You know, they're from the UN, they're from USAID, Right? They're from the World Health Organization. And I'm like, these are my people. You know, <laughs> we're here to help, <laughs> you know? 
right? We're giving aid and we're gonna help and we're going to this, this small town called Kumasi, which isn't really a small town, it's the second largest city in Ghana, except for it's 12 hours away by car because there's no roads to get there. So we, uh, or roads without potholes and lack of bridges and that kind of thing. So we fly there. And you know, the only people who can afford to fly in Africa are white people, so that's all you ever see on the planes, usually, for the most part. So we fly from Accra to Kamasi, and I leave all these, I don't know where they're going, right? But I get in a cab, and uh, you know, they have cars picking them up, but I'm on a budget, I'm working for a company that's trying to do good in the world. And I, I'm assuming that USAID and who are, you know, the World Health Organization, those guys are doing the same thing, but my company had a small budget, and. We were there to help local entrepreneurs who were doing renewable energy and energy efficiency and trying to make the world a better place and the environment at the same time. So as uh, I got off the plane, I got in a cab, and the cab took me to the gas station I was going to because the entrepreneur I was visiting who had had a, had a loan from my company, um, he, he ran a gas station, you know? And... Uh, he had just gotten a delivery of 30 tons of uh, LPG. Does anybody know what LPG is? Right, so for those of you that don't know what liquid propane gas is, you know, at the end of the day, if you ever used a barbecue and you got that little, fork, you know, little cylinder that you fill up, blue rhino or whatever it is that you use, that's, that's, that's what propane is. And the thing is there is that everybody uses that to cook. In fact, the cabbies use it to run their cars because it's cheaper than petrol um, and it's usually, um, it's, it's cleaner and it's better for them, right? Because if you're cooking charcoal in your hut, you know, you get all these fumes, you can't breathe. Propane's a little cleaner burning. So you just got a 30, 30 ton delivery. Did I mention that they hadn't had gas for 13 days in the country of Ghana? Right, so there are people been waiting to cook for 13 days when I arrived. I already mentioned I was white, <laughs> right? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my plane now, and I got map behind, so I got no white people with me, and I'm in this, I'm in a gas station with a mile, uh, a mile, with a line two miles long of people waiting for gas with barbecue propane canisters, 14 kilogram tanks of, of propane waiting to be filled, who haven't had gas for 13 days. There's only one refinery in the entire country of Ghana, so the only way that you get gas, because Propane's a refined oil product is to, you know, refine it in the refinery. When the refinery breaks down, you don't have gas. <laughs> um, so I'm a little uh, out of sorts when I arrive because I get out of the cab and I walk into the, you know, you can imagine, right, this long line and then there's the filling station. It's just like a gas station here, right, except for it's a big giant 30-ton tank of propane. You walk up and uh, it's like you can... You know that scene in the movie where the DJ's rocking and the party's going and then like some idiot bumps the freaking DJ table and there's a scratch and the whole party goes like that? That's exactly what happened when I got out, when I got out of the cab, <laughs> right? I think it was because I was wearing khakis and a polo shirt. <laughs> it wasn't because, no, it was probably because I was white and I was wearing khakis and a polo shirt, which is what my company required me to do. So, I, and to be totally frank, I'm sorry for the crass language, I was, I'm fucked. Like, they don't speak as much, Ghana, Ghana is an English speaking country, they have their main language is tree. 
I used a little bit of tree, but I was there to conduct a survey and talk to the entrepreneur who had no time to talk to me because he was filling gas and um, I couldn't read his accounting manual anyway because it was a T ledger like they used back in the 50s in terms of like credits and debits. Um, but I had to do a survey. So it's like, okay, I got a lot of people here though. That's really good, right? There's a lot of people around, so I can do a survey. I mean, I've only got to get about 150 of them. Uh, but they're really focused on getting gas. <laughs> I got a 20 question survey. Who designed this fucking thing and why am I here? <laughs> right? So I'm, uh, I'm sweating it a little bit until I see some kid who's probably about 15, 16, right? Does anybody guess what he's reading? He's reading A Catcher in the Rye. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> Holden Caulfield. I was like, one of the most amazing characters of 20th century American fiction, you know? That like describes my life right now because here I was in New York, I was rebelling against my privilege and I'm gonna go help the world, and right? And I'm over here and I was like, holy shit, like I don't know what to do with all this. And he's reading it calmly in the middle of the storm of people looking for gas. And I was like, dude, you speak English. And he goes, yeah, his name was Kwame. And I said, Kwame, I'll give you 20 bucks if you're my right-hand man all day long and you help me talk to all these people because I'm never gonna get anywhere without you, <laughs> right? And why is that? Well, let me tell you what I was doing a survey about. Okay, I'm gonna see if anyone in this room understands that. Ready? I'm here representing an organization that is interesting, interested in developing a protocol to understand fuel switching for additionality within the Kyoto Protocol in order to make sure that the clean development mechanism actually works right in your country. Right. Does anybody understand that? Yeah, I'm not sure I still understand that. Oh, Mark Cherniak, thank you. Um, so uh, I'm about nine minutes and 46 seconds into this, and I was told I had 10, but he gave me some latitude, so I'm gonna take another two minutes, hopefully, to wrap this up. Kwame was my savior, because Kwame said, dude, we're not gonna use that, that's not gonna work. He said, you're just gonna tell him that you're here to help him get more gas. And I was like, you know, that works for me, actually, because that's what I'm here trying to do <laughs> at the end of the day. So I just went around and said, hey, I'm here to help you get more gas. You know what? They didn't want to give a shit about my survey. They wanted to talk to me about George Bush. They wanted to talk to me about religion. It was 2006. They wanted to talk to me about religion. They wanted to talk to me about America. I tried to sprinkle in a few questions about, so how often do you cook? And how do you use charcoal or do you use LPG? How many kilograms a week? And they're like, I have no idea. <laughs> so... Um, I get back on the plane, short story, right? I get back on the plane, I'm exhausted and I've had this amazing experience where I was the only white guy for 12 hours. I don't know about you, I've never had an experience like that since. My entire life is the most unique experience I've ever had. I was the only white guy for 12 hours by myself. And I was like, wow, I got on the plane and I was like, oh my God, more white people. And they didn't want to talk to me about that. I was so excited. I was like, you don't, like, that was huge. This was a really big experience. No, they were complaining about, ah, I'm this fucking shithole. I don't want to be here. I don't know why my body, you know, they were talking about policy and, you know, all this other thing, how we're going to help and fix everything. And so I got off the plane and I left them, right? And I'm thinking about, yeah, I get it, you know, Ghana, 80% of the population here lives on $2 a day, 40% lives on a dollar a day. There's a lot of work to be done. But like, I was the only white guy for 12 hours. 
Like, are you numb? Are you so veterans that you're numb to that fact? You know? Um, anyway, I, I got picked up by this guy named Michael. Michael was about in his early 20s. And he drove me to his father's house, and we watched the World Cup that night. And I don't know if you know what was really unique about 2006 World Cup, but the 2006 World Cup, Ghana beat the USA on the same day that I was the one white dude for 12 hours. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of this intense, emotional, come-to-Jesus sort of experience in my, I was 27, 28, I'm not quite sure how old I was, 2006, but anyway, um, no, I was older than that. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I'm 35 in case you're trying to do the math right now. So anyway, um, I'm, at the, I'm at this guy's house watching the World Cup, and we lose. The United States loses. And there was a UN delegate there um, who was an advisor to President Kufour, who was the president of Ghana at the time. And we were talking about my experience and talking about Kyoto Protocol and clean development mechanism and how all this stuff works. And we left, and Michael, the 20-year-old, got in the car and he said, you know, all that shit doesn't matter. I said, I said, what do you mean? Meanwhile, the car's like rocking back and forth because he's driving me home after the United States had lost and everybody that sees there's a white guy in the car where we're driving through the streets and it's pretty clear. I'm an, I don't know what it is about people outside of America, but they can almost sniff. The scent of an American is like so strong. It's like there's a lot of other white people in the world. How do you know I'm an American? Like, how do you know? But anyway, it's like they laser in, and so they're like, we beat you, and the car is shaking, and I'm just like, you know, I'm rolling with it. It's joy. I'm not afraid, right? It's just this, when this Toyota 4Runner, by the way, right? And we're, it's like, I love what you do for me. Anyway, so we're driving, and um, he says it doesn't, it just all that shit you talked about tonight with that, with that guy, my dad's friend, doesn't matter. And I said, why? He's like, because all the aid from all these other countries that, that you think you're here to help us with, he's like, I don't want it. I was like, what do you, he's like, because I don't want to be a country that is only thought of in the rest of the world's mind as a receiver. He's like, I want to give. And I, to this day, that one line from this 20-year-old kid who's driving me home to my hotel where there's only white people in the hotel because the only people can afford to stay in a five-star hotel in Africa, for the most part, are white people. <laughs> And I was, I was floored in the simplicity of that comment. It completely changed my career and my direction and where I was going. And I, all my aspirations to work overseas in that moment changed. And while I'm grateful for the time I spent living and working all over the continent of Africa, that day the United States lost to Ghana and I was the only white guy for 12 hours. I've come home and been dedicated to trying to solve my problems right here ever since. And so that's what being an expat did for me. It made me want to come home. That was Kip Baratov, who currently lives in Mosher, Oregon, where the population is 430 people. He actively wonders how he ever escaped New York and the African continent to get there. When he isn't reminiscing about his time overseas, telling stories about his childhood next to the Big Apple, for contemplating life in a small rural town, Kip dedicates his time to building companies that integrate human and natural systems. For more information and stories, go to expatstories.org. That's expat with an X. Music by Three Leg Torso. The Portland Live Show was produced by Matt Miner and directed by Luann Moldovan. 
and is recorded by Gary Furlow, who also engineers these podcasts. Thanks for listening.